Welcome to the 360 Approach to Marketing podcast. Each episode will deliver real-world solutions for your toughest marketing and technology challenges. Hosted by the executive teams of 360Biz and 360Civic, agencies that have produced award-winning marketing strategies for public and private sector entities. Each broadcast will feature lively discussions with industry experts about optimizing websites, video, social media, and other communication channels in an ever-evolving digital space. Today, we're focusing on effective communication for school districts during unexpected emergencies, specifically with the recent COVID-19 situation. My name is Bridget DeRico, and joining us to weigh in on our topic today are three experts. The webmaster from one of the nation's most innovative school districts, Huntsville City Schools, Mr. Kevin Redmond. The director of marketing and communications from Phoenix's Paradise Valley Unified School District, Michelle Anderson, and Dr. Rosina Wright Castro, a 22 year veteran in education. She's also an instructor at UCLA and an academic counselor at Cerritos College, will also join us to share her perspective. So I want to thank you three for joining us. I know this is a very busy time. Uh, but just to uh, kind of introduce you to our audience, I'd like to start with Kevin. Can you uh, just briefly share, uh, you know, what it was like for you in Huntsville during the first 24 hours after the announcements that schools would be closing? Share, you know, what you guys did to jump into action. Sure, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, to be honest, uh, if I had to describe it in one word, it'd probably be chaos. Um, mm-hmm. I heard someone else describe it as slowly moving chaos. I think that's kind of what we're in now. But um, we had been planning before the actual closure was announced. So I'm I'm very thankful that we had a good leadership team that was uh, planning. But of course, that plan changed constantly. Um, You know, the governor for our state would get out and make an announcement or the state superintendent and everything would have to change. Um, So our biggest focus on what we were communicating to our parents was, Number one, you know, we're closing schools down. This is what that's going to look like. Uh, We really had to stress that we were going to be continuing instruction. um, And so the education would be continuing and what that was going to look like. Um, Mm -hmm. We had lots and lots of questions about what that was going to look like. What's graduation going to end up looking like? Um, Just it, it was a whole lot of questions and it was unprecedented. Right. And Kevin, how were those questions coming into you? Were people emailing, um, you know, calling? Uh, that's the first part. And then, you know, how was the district responding to this volume of questions? So there's a multitude of resources that we have, both for communicating with parents and for allowing them to communicate with us. Um, one of those is the uh, Contact Us link that we have on our website where they can fill out a brief form to shoot an email to the district, which then gets mm-hmm. sent to the appropriate department so that somebody can follow up with them. We also, um, not even just on the district's official social media accounts, but there's tons of parent-created Facebook accounts, Twitter feeds, things like that, where there's a lot of discussion that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's at least two I can think of off the top of my head that are frequented by a lot of parents. And we monitor those. so. We will actually see, you know, we're getting a lot of questions out there on Facebook about, you know, graduation and are we going to have it on the same date? And so 
we collect it anywhere we can get it. We collect it whether somebody is calling us on the phone, sending emails, um, and then we do everything we can to respond to it um, as widely as possible. We want to cast that wide net because eventually the goal is to answer questions even before they're asked. Um, so if we can predict that, but we have a variety of things, we would respond on social media about some things. Mm -hmm. Um, we started developing web pages on our website. Um, in fact, we created one that was our coronavirus crisis contingency plan that became kind of a one-stop shop for everything that you might need to know about Huntsville City Schools response to the COVID-19 closure. And uh, so, yeah, it was that we were sending out messaging um, through text messages and things like that. So, and finally, I'll say we were also using the local media as an ally um, to connect with them to make sure that they were also helping us get that information out over the television uh, broadcasts. And Michelle, uh, was that similar to your experience um, or, you know, how was, was the experience different at Paradise Valley Unified? So it was definitely similar in some ways. We were in an interesting situation as I was kind of monitoring what was happening at um, um, neighboring states. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like they were having things happen before Arizona was as far as closure goes. So we could see some of the things that were going to be happening, which was a benefit. Uh, for us, though, uh, when our governor made the announcement, we were actually on spring break. It was the Sunday as we entered spring break. So you can imagine that's a little bit different and mm -hmm. great that we don't have uh, uh, students in the classrooms. However, we also don't have our school staff that are actually working. So we had to be a little bit creative. We started um, ahead of time. We had our governing board meeting that was going to be um, that during the week of spring break, having a special meeting prior to the governor making the announcement. Um, but we had to be mindful of uh, how do we get information out to our employees that aren't obviously checking their email because maybe they had already, you know, left and went down, to, for example, to Mexico or traveled outside of the state and they're not checking their email. How are we getting information to them? Um, so we were making sure first we were sending information out to our employees prior to sending it to our uh, families and then keeping them up to date that even though that week schools were closed and, and they were kind of the state was doing a kind of two week increments for a while. Um, how are we getting that information out? How are we ramping up distance learning? Um, making sure, like I said, with the, with the employees that we were doing uh, dial calls because typically maybe mm -hmm. you wouldn't be sending out um, a message out through you know a voice dialer, but it was important because they weren't sitting next to a computer if they were on vacation. Um, and happened to be um, because the our state, like I said, took a little bit of. Uh, we were a little bit later in doing that full mm -hmm. uh, closed closure. Um, it was definitely, I would, I would agree with the. It was kind of organized chaos, if you will. Um, I had at that point in time, I hadn't even had a year underneath my belt uh, in our school district, um, or even in Arizona. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, I had that emergency management experience in my, my prior jobs. Um, I also have a fairly new team, and so they had not worked a emergency on this scale before. I mean, obviously, none of us have uh, on this scale, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, making sure I was very clear on who was handling what um, and, and getting that information out. Um, mm -hmm. We have a great leadership team here, and we thankfully... 
um, had some clear direction, but yeah, it was, it was organized chaos, I would say, um, at first. Thanks. And uh, Dr. Wright, from your perspective, you know, observing how, you know, school districts around the nation have responded, uh, you know, what are some of the best practices that that you have observed? Um, I think that um, in places where um, school districts really kind of already had um, an emergency plan in place, um, it has helped to really kind of um, uh, extend that plan to kind of, you know, account for this type of situation, which clearly was unprecedented for, for all of us. Um, and um, I think that, you know, if there were um, already communication plans that included things like, you know, phone calls and texts and website um, uh, uh, content or, um uh, delivery of information, um, they were using things like um, social media, then I think that um, it has really kind of helped that homeschool um, communication and relationship um, in places where that hasn't been the case. And I think that this, you know, this situation is so different because it isn't a localized situation. This is something that we're dealing with nationally. And you have so much variety in terms of how it's playing out across different states in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, there isn't a one-size-fits-all, right? Um, but in places where I think um, the communication wasn't necessarily well-established in terms of a plan between um, school districts and, um, uh, and, and parents and homes, then I think that... Uh, in that absence, there has been a lot of confusion. Um, right. um, even in the best of situations, there's been a lot of confusion, but but more so the case when when that plan hasn't been established. Thank you. And uh, Kevin and Michelle, you both had emergency communications plans in place, um, but not for a pandemic. Uh, so, you know, if you can jump in, Kevin, how was and how wasn't the existing emergency plan prepared for the unexpected. Sure, that's a very valid. Um, and we're always looking at that plan. Uh, I would say we're looking at it at least every year, if not more often. But, <clears throat> you know, as you said, this was unprecedented. Our plan was built around the kind of emergencies that you would expect in a school system, although you hope that you never have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you have things like active shooter situations and uh, things like that. But those are all generally a brief situation you know you've got uh an emergency situation in a school you're responding you're communicating to parents and then there is usually within 24 48 hours some sort of resolution that's where this became wildly different because this is obviously an ongoing situation that we're still dealing with and i think that's the aspect that our plan um had to grow and adapt a lot to what we were experiencing some of those things that we might communicate, you know, say for instance, we're going to blast out a, uh, we use Schoolcast as our uh, messaging app. So we would send out text messages, robocalls, things like that, but we couldn't be sending those out, you know, every hour or even every day in some cases, because, you know, they start losing their effectiveness. Mm. So we had to start kind of adapting and that's where we really came down to that. All right, we need a one-stop shop for information that we can send people to, that gets updated on a regular basis. Um, and that was something that really wasn't 
I guess, visualized originally in the plan, but it ended up serving us well. Um, so we've adapted our plan to that. Um, but that's the biggest thing I would say that, that was difficult was dealing with it being a long-term ongoing emergency communications plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Michelle, you had mentioned that you were relatively new with the district and your team was new. And, you know, so from that perspective with dealing with this, un, you know, unexpected pandemic, how, how have you reviewed the district's emergency communications plan? Well, I, you know, it, like I said, it was interesting because, uh, you know, when you're when you're at a district for less than a year, like like I said, thankfully, mm-hmm. my team knew that I had worked in public safety for so long. I had worked large scale emergencies for days at a time. Um, and it, believe it or not, it actually benefited me a little bit um, because my team was able to see. Uh, what I was capable of, and I didn't have to earn their trust or show them. Um, they already knew I had that experience. And then when I hopped in and started, you know, delegating or assigning tasks, um, it was, they were, you know, hopped right on board. Um, and then I um, uh, sat, I, I'm fortunate enough as the uh, district's uh, communications director to sit on the superintendent's cabinet. Um, his leadership team. And so I actually took on more of an expanded role than what a typical communications director would do um, and uh, get really more in the weeds, if you will, with our emergency response plan in addition to the communications. Um, So that was beneficial. But like Kevin said, I I do think looking at the plan, yes, we had, I think, everything dialed in when it came to uh, the typical school emergencies. Uh, We did not have this long-term plan um, when it came to an extended emergency. Uh, Thankfully, the district's response plan did cover pandemics. um, And so we had a little bit of that guidance in there. Um, but yeah, that, that we definitely saw some holes. Um, and I think we have, have changed that now. Uh, the other thing, uh, as Kevin had mentioned, you know, when, when schools did for us, once, uh, the distance learning began, began and families started to receive messages, you know, from their principal, and then you had the superintendent and then you had teachers sending it out, um, the, I think the first, and if you had, uh, I will say if you had families that had multiple students, all those mm-hmm. messages became noise. And so we needed to make sure that we were very mindful in how often we were communicating from the district level. And then I was working with our assistant superintendents to make sure they were having those conversations with the principals so that these families weren't getting in one day, maybe five messages, because again, it just becomes noise. It's not effective. Um That's an interesting point, Um, Michelle, sorry to interrupt. Uh, Kevin, I just wanted to see if you had a similar situation in adjusting the frequency and the methods of how you were delivering communications to parents, teachers, students, without, you know, still informing everyone, but not, as Michelle was saying, just create this noise that eventually they just tune out. Absolutely. Um, and, And actually, before I answer that, if you'll allow me, I wanted to kind of dovetail on what Michelle was talking about. We had a similar situation in that we were actually between communications directors when all of this happened. Um, The one that we had had for years had retired. We already had a new one hired, but they weren't on board yet. And so there was a period where God bless him. He was basically working for two school systems at the same time. 
and trying to juggle wow. us as the new system while still helping. And it was another very large school system in the state. Um, but leadership was very supportive. They actually started pulling me into those cabinet discussions, even though I normally am not, you know, a part of that as just a webmaster. Um, but absolutely with the frequency, we had to evaluate that constantly. There were several things that we actually were sending surveys out to our parents and families about, um, especially when it came to the way we were doing the virtual instruction. Um, and after a while, we had to start asking each other, okay, we've sent two surveys out this month. When are we going to start hitting that um, point where people aren't going to keep filling out these surveys? Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the direct communications were the same way. How many are we going to send before they're not really listening anymore? And luckily, we were able to pull a lot of analytics data for that so that we can see, hey, you know, this first survey we had 15,000 responses. The second one we had eight. Um, if we do another one, we're probably not going to get a good, uh, a good enough portion of our population to really count that as good data anyways. Um, and same thing with, we can actually pull up in our system when we send out a robocall text message, however we do that, and see how many people hung up within the first 10 seconds of getting that call, how many people um, actually clicked on a link to read the full message, those kinds of things. And that was very helpful to inform us as we went through the process about whether we needed to reevaluate how how much we were communicating those those direct messages like that. I agree with Michelle 100% on that. Mm -hmm. um, Rosina, uh, Dr. Bright, I'd like to pull you in too. Uh, you know, we're talking about all of the different mediums to communicate: the robocalls, email. Uh, you know, knowing what we know now. How do you think in the future school districts, um, you know, can use other opportunities to kind of prepare an expectation for parents and teachers about emergency situations? And I think all of those are excellent strategies. And um, you know, I think as Kevin had mentioned, I think that, you know, we, we need to use all of the opportunities that are available because I think that, you know, people will communicate in different ways and receive information. Um, or choose to receive information on a daily basis in different ways. Um, but I think um, <clears throat> my thoughts are also around um, you know, using the opportunities that schools have um, uh, in terms of events. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that we do a very good job um, to prepare our students for um, emergency situations. Um, you know, we um, will, you know, depending on what the scenario might be, you might have countless drills that students have participated over, um, over the years in that have, you know, prepared them to, um, to, to have a sense of what to expect when a certain emergency occurs, but, um, we don't always have that in place for parents. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think where possible, um, I think there's a need, and in this situation has certainly taught us that, you know, this is an ongoing and evolving issue. This is not like a lot of other emergency situations that occur and then they're, they're, you know, they're done. And then we kind of move on to the recovery phase, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where this is ongoing. And so there's a need, I think, to, um, to make parents aware of uh, communication strategies also in writing and to familiarize them with what to expect. And I just will give an example. It's really not COVID related, but in my experience having worked at um, various uh, 
community colleges and universities over the years, um, I've, I have been a part of um, numerous school shootings and I have um, seen where in the absence of information, parents, um, you know, and rightfully so are, are, are panicked and they immediately come down to the school site or, you know, the, the campus um, because they don't have information about who's been shot and they're, they're frightened. Um, and, you know, oftentimes they can put themselves at risk or they're interfering with, you know, uh, active investigation. Um, and it's obviously, you know, they're, they're concerned for their child. So my thought is as well, what can we do to prepare them for situations like that? Um, you know, what, what are our expectations of parents um, in, in these types of emergencies and how do we communicate that to them so that we are preparing them in the same way that we prepare students, right? Um, and, um, you know, the more information that we can give to them um, in, in written form so that they have time to digest it in, in their own, you know, on their own terms in their own time, but that we're able to give it to them at, you know, campus events like, um, you know, you've got student registration at the beginning of the academic year, which is always ideal because you kind of set the tone for, for that school year. But then, you know, using opportunities like back to school night, um, you know, any other kinds of events that may occur throughout the school year, um, messages from, uh, from classroom teachers or, you know, from the web, website um, to just reiterate that this plan exists and that, you know, schools really want parents to become familiar with with uh, with the content of these plans. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think is my from my own perspective as a parent, uh, you know, when hopefully we will be going back to back to school nights at some point. But um, I do think that that is a, a good venue to provide that information. And as you said, Dr. Wright, that expectation of you know, preparing parents as well as we do, you know, the, the students with fire drills and, and different things. And Bridget, um, can I just add one more thing? To yes, that? Because please. I think, I think Dr. Wright uh, uh, definitely hit the nail on the head there. What we also noticed, and I think obviously um, when it comes to, you know, a K-12 education, a lot of the families, um, so we have all obviously our channels and getting the communication, but some of them had unsubscribed because they didn't want messages mm -hmm. from the district prior to this emergency. And so one of the other uh, increased workload we had was having to re have these get these families resubscribed because maybe two months prior they decided like, oh, I don't need to hear this or inadvertently mm -hmm. hadn't um, clicked the correct button or hadn't provided an email address. Um, and, and then you have obviously issues with uh, custodial parents or primary custody. So um, I think it was a, uh, you know, we always uh, preach that to our principals to remind the families, but I think we, um, as a communications department, need to do a better job in making sure prior to any emergency and educating our families, that's part of the education piece is making sure they have provided the correct contact information every year mm -hmm. and making sure they understand what that means. Right. Now, I did a tactical question I have to follow up is, how did you go about getting, you know, those parents who had unsubscribed, resubscribed so that they were getting the updates? Did you have to reach out to them or? Yeah, so we did have our schools reaching out to them okay. uh, individually. Um, there was not a way that I could physically obviously subscribe them because if they had unsubscribed, yeah. I can't, can't be spamming them. Um, you know, as Kevin mentioned, our website was hugely useful in 
every communication was posted on that. The information was there. And so there was places to go. We had also set up a specific, um, and we still have one now for reopening, but we had one for the COVID. So they can email, they had one email address that they could send questions. And so some of that, um, working with our local media partners, but, um, you know, I would say that's still, it still is a struggle because we definitely have a diverse um, student population and family population, different um, economic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are families who I, I guarantee to this day have not received some messages. Um, but we had, mm-hmm. we had teachers knocking on doors um, and providing information and following up with um, students, mm-hmm. families. And you can imagine for a district of our side with size yeah. with, you know, 30,000 students that can be a little taxing but they were our, our teachers and our educators are amazing I, I would also add uh i love that you mentioned that the teachers were knocking on doors and things like that we had a lot of similar things going on even down to when we realized we weren't coming back we had teachers who were having parades through neighborhoods mm-hmm. to say goodbye to their kids and um it, it it really drives home for me that this is a community thing. This is not one department or even one school system. Obviously we're all in the same boat together. Um, and we've, we were surprised by some things like when we did our, our, our learning system that we came up with there at the last minute in March, um, we were fortunate because of our size and the technology infrastructure that we have. Um, we actually have a television studio as part of our school system. And so all of our elementary grades, we actually had teachers teaching lessons and recording videos every week. And we started to find looking in the analytics that we had people accessing other school systems, accessing that content from other parts of the state and even other parts of the country. Um, This has really been a nationwide combined effort because at the end of the day, whether you're a teacher in a classroom, a principal, a superintendent or communications uh, personnel, we're all here to try to make sure that the parents and the students are getting what they need in the school year. And that's why, as uh, Dr. Wright said, we use any communications tool we can to get it out there. Like Michelle said, I'm sure we had some parents who never got a message from us because they unsubscribed or something at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, But we made sure that information was all available to them in one form or another. Um, And the media was a part of that partnership as well. I don't, I think we probably had a lot of parents who got the majority of their information watching the nightly news at night. Mm -hmm. And so we were in constant communication with those media outlets to make sure they were getting accurate information. Cause that's the other battle is you have all this information you're trying to put out there and then it gets told and retold and retold and retold until is it still the same thing? Are people hearing the right information? Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, uh, just to follow on both uh, to address well, all three of you, you know, knowing what we all know now, what you know would be the top three implementation tools you would recommend, you know, that all uh, school districts have have in place. Bridget, can I can I just before we move on to that, can I just sure. piggyback? I'd like to piggyback actually off of what both Michelle and Kevin said because I feel like this is important from a great uh, the perspective of understanding like our, our parent population. Um, so I and Michelle, you had said that you know um, it was uh, really important to be able to communicate with parents and to understand that you have a diversity of of, of in that population, right? Of mm-hmm. um, of parent backgrounds, and I'm I'm looking at this also from the perspective of 
um, language backgrounds, right, mm-hmm. of, of parents yep. and how important it is for us to be mindful that as we are um, implementing these communication strategies and the content of, of, of these um, uh, communication plans or strategies that we are mindful of the fact that there are folks that have, you know, that speak various uh, languages that may not necessarily be uh, primary English, right? Um, yep. And um, that uh, also, um, you know, people have different access to technology. And so, whereas, you know, one uh, population in our of our parents may be, you know, very proficient at using technology and being able to check websites and, you know, getting information via text. Um, you might have groups of parents that don't use technology at all, and they are relying, as, as Kevin, you said, on um, the radio or nightly news. And so it's so important for us to use all of those strategies, but to also be mindful of um, the languages in which we are communicating and the content of, of um, those messages to make sure that we are um you know, effectively communicating with, with our parent groups. I'm, no, I'm so thankful for you to sit, to bring that up. Uh, one of the people I ended up working with more than anybody else through this entire uh, process beginning in March is our ESOL director, because we were, you know, I really am glad the website that we have has a feature built in that can be translated to over 150 languages through Google Translate, um, which is about 80% uh, accurate. But whenever we were putting out a document, like maybe we wanted a handout that would be very quick and visual, so it would kind of help simplify some things, we would need to get that translated. And I was working through our ESOL department to get that accomplished. And there's a turnaround time there. And so you start juggling with, okay, this information is something I really want to get out quickly, but it's going to take two days to get this document back. Do I really want those families to have to wait two additional days we started to actually see some process deficiencies that can be shored up there to make sure that we get those uh, multilingual translations out. We have a very, and I can't speak for all the other school systems, but we have a very big Spanish speaking population. We have a sizable Russian speaking population and even German. Um, and so that's a huge concern. You're, I, I, I couldn't stress that enough, Dr. Wright. Um, and what Michelle said as well, it's you really have to understand that audience and there is access to technology um, is a huge part of that as well. But the language barrier can really make communications difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of that, with having the website that can be in multiple languages and, um, you know, is this do you see this changing the number of you know, custom translations that you have on your websites? Because you both have that capability in your, in your websites, correct, to have mm-hmm. various languages. So do you see that as moving forward being more of a priority? I'll, and I'll jump in real quick. I would say that it's always been a priority for us because we want to make sure, right. um, of course, free and appropriate education, everybody deserves the same access. But one thing that we realized we need to improve is actually training those families on how to access that, how to utilize that mm-hmm. feature. Because just because it's there doesn't mean everybody understands how to use it. Right. Um, and so we've been working at developing tutorial videos and actually working directly with uh, school staff who are in turn working directly with families. Um, so we're, 
we're kind of teaching the adults as well as trying to ensure the students' education to make sure that they know how to access that. Great, Michelle. Any yeah, and I would I would say the exact same thing because um, you know different families access things different ways. Um, mm -hmm. What we have definitely learned, and we're launching for um, this. We actually just launched it this week. Is um, having a site that. Um, not just the website, but with mm -hmm. assistance when it comes to if they're accessing the Chromebook, if they have login information, if they, um, you know, just have some questions when it comes to how are they checking their students' grades that we did not have before and making mm -hmm. sure that we're properly educating our families because how, how can a family, if their primary language is not English, how right. are they helping their student, you know, hop on to the technology and support them and provide that assistance especially if you're looking at like a kindergarten or first grader. Um, how is that family helping to make their, you know, to provide um, and have their student be successful if you're working from home? And so it was definitely, I think we all knew uh, and, and had that equity um, piece in our minds and have been proactive in, in areas, but we definitely saw a huge gap when it came to some of this because, um, you know, internet access, um, right. you know, like I said, when we're talking about poverty, when we're talking about access, when we're talking about the translation, I think when you're dealing with distance learning, that is all of those things come into play and um, we all need to be mindful of that when we're communicating and providing information to our families. Dr. Wright, do you have anything to add on that? Um, I, I think uh, I think we've we've all uh, definitely covered that well. I'm so um, I'm grateful to hear uh, both of you uh, kind of share your experiences with that because I think that um, you know COVID nineteen I think in many ways has really kind of brought to light um, issues of uh, equity and inclusion, right? Um, mm -hmm. And some of the things that have probably been there for a very very long time, but um, we just, you know, didn't necessarily have the opportunity to bring them to light and to really kind of, uh, with, you know, school administrators and uh, educators where everybody's just so incredibly busy all of the time. And it's not that you're unaware of these, these issues that occur um, or um, we just aren't always sure how to address them. And so I think that um, this has given us one of those opportunities and timely one. And so I'm, I'm happy to hear um, you all share uh, you know, some of your experiences and some of the things that you have done to respond to those experiences. Yeah, I really appreciate all of you being on um, the podcast today and, you know, just hearing the quick response uh, that both of you uh, facilitated and worked on in your districts and in such a short amount of time. And I mean, here we are getting ready for the next school year. And, um, you know, in closing, just if you could, you know, kind of brief us on where you're at and, and what your strategy is in, you know, this next school year. Um, so I, I guess I'll take the lead there. Uh, I think, I, I believe our entire department feels far better off now than we did in March. Um, we have learned a lot of lessons along the way. Um, just to throw an additional thing out there, you've got the access to technology, you have the language barriers, you also have accessibility barriers. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Section 508 for you know digital and communications platforms has been huge over the last several years. 
having to build that into whatever we're doing in a, in a situation like this uh, became challenging as well. But I think we feel better because we've, we've learned a lot since March. Um, we have learned how to plan with a little bit more flexibility because we would spend weeks coming up with a very detailed plan just to have, you know, one governor or a state superintendent throw a wrench in everything and we're back to ground zero. Um, but I think we're a lot better off. We have a better game plan of how we're going to uh, house information, how we're going to get that out to parents. Um, and I, I'm very, I feel that we're very lucky as a state because our state actually, even without any kind of mandate towards virtual learning or anything like that, in fact, they're still pushing to have students back in the classroom. But the state did support a virtual learning environment system that they've made available to the, all of the schools in the state, um, which is huge. I mean, that makes such a giant difference in being able to develop the curriculum, but it's also a communication piece because that goes down to that micro level where the teachers can communicate more effectively directly with their classes, their students, and their parents. And at the end of the day, you can send all these district messages out, and that's very, very important, absolutely. But a lot of the information I think parents are going to get is going to be down at that school level. Um, that's a lot of the day-to-day -day questions that we that we have been getting as we prepare for this upcoming school year. Um, but I, I'm hopeful uh, that we can make this a little bit smoother as we go along, but continuing to plan for the unknown uh, is, uh, it's just been made so much more paramount and important as we've gone through this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Michelle? I'm a little envious of Kevin right now because um, <laughs> it, is, it, it is not so clear in Arizona. I love my state and my newfound state. However, uh, our, our first day of school, uh, and thankfully we have a governing board that has really taken the lead and made the decision that we are going to be online learning um, through Labor Day at least. Um, so we at least have that clear direction, but uh, we just had an, a, an executive order by the governor's office that um, has had originally had postponed to in-person learning until at least um, August the 17th. And now we're waiting for benchmarks um, to be released from uh, state health officials um, so that uh, the decision can be at the local level of when that in-person learning happens. Um, they also threw in um, something that was a bit confusing, so we're trying to get clarification on um, having some supervised on-site uh, support for students and we don't know if that's all students. We don't know if that's a special segment of our population um, to start on August 17th. So you can imagine if we're doing real-time instruction with our uh, teachers and our students, who's going to be watching the students that come in and need that on-site support because you can't have a teacher teaching online and then having a separate set of kids that are, say, in the cafeteria um, and then have... How many schools is that? Do you cap that? So um, we are still very much, I would say, in the um, not only trying to adapt, but trying to figure out where we're at with that. Um, but uh, I, it, it, again, it's it's still that calm chaos. Um, I, I'm very fortunate here in Arizona, and, I, and I'm sure it's um, like this in Alabama as well. Um, our our uh, Arizona school public relations 
um, association um, has all the lead communicators in the valley and they are on a listserv and so uh, sharing plans um, hey are you getting this question um, and so you have all the subject experts um, in their fields here communicating which I think is excellent um, you know we have in, in just the Phoenix area approximately 30 school districts so you can imagine how confusing that can be to families because mm -hmm. if you're watching the news one school district's doing something completely different than another school district nobody's doing the same thing um, and then the last uh, thing that I think I, I really learned from this. We have a very strong um, parent council called United Parent Council for our district. Uh, they have been a great ally. Um, and so a lot of times if I'm, I'm getting ready to send a message out, um, I will be on the phone with their president, you know, reading it to her, having her give some feedback. Um, she's, if she's getting questions or if they're getting questions through their parent, you know, their different, um, parent groups or through their social media, we're making sure, you know, to think ahead and answer those questions ahead of time to, you know, relieve some stress some concerns and anxiety and make sure we're providing information. But um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I think all of us would say we're tired, but I do also think <laughs> there's some great, there's some great opportunities with it as well, because we're, we're, we're doing things a little bit more creative than I think um, we have in the past. Well, I mean, just from this conversation, it, you know, I appreciate, first of all, how candid everyone has been, but the number of lessons learned in such a short time and the adjustments made, um, you know, I, I think at the, at the end of the day, it's just going to, you know, make everything more effective and efficient. And as Dr. Wright said, you know, seeing where improvements need to be made and and making those happen. So uh, thank you so much, Kevin Redmond, Michelle Anderson, and Dr. Rosina Wright. Appreciate your time. And uh, maybe we can do a, a follow-up in a few months to see where everybody's at. Thank you all. Have a great afternoon. You as well. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bridget. Bye-bye.